0: Indeed, as we open God's word today, this is our prayer that God would teach us his way. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. As we've seen in our series on 1 John, the Apostle John builds on and fleshes out several points. He lays the foundation, there are two foundational truths, the fact that God came in the flesh and the Apostles saw him, They looked on him, they gazed on him, they touched him, they heard him. This is one of the foundations of the apostolic proclamation. The other is, who is this God who came in the flesh? God is light, and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. With these two foundational truths, John now begins to challenge the false teachers as well as to encourage the believers. The false teachers make a series of false claims. First of all, the first false claim is that sin does not affect our relationship with God. Um, And John says, listen, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Um, If you say you have fellowship with God, but you walk in darkness and sin, then you, in fact, are lying The second false claim is that sin does not exist in our nature. We are not sinners by nature. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In a sense, this is sort of an extension of the first false claim. Here the claim is they have no sin. So they have no need to be cleansed from any unrighteousness. And John answers and says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. The third false claim is that sin does not reveal itself in our conduct. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So if you say you have not sinned, then in fact you are deliberately lying. Secondly, you are lying to yourself, you are deceiving yourself. But then thirdly, you are saying God is lying. You make him out to be a liar. And so there's a progression of sorts, as we've seen the past few weeks. We lie to ourselves, we lie to others, and we lie to our, uh, others, we lie to ourselves, and then we call God a liar. So at the beginning of chapter 2, John answers, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So I mentioned before, these are hard words from John, and so the readers might think, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not a believer. Am I in the light? Am I having fellowship with God? Are my sins forgiven? Well, having challenged the false teachers and these three lies, if you wish, he now gives three tests, and the tests are to unmask the false teachers, but I think also to, to give confidence to those who are truly God's people. There is the moral test, that is obedience. There is the social test, that is love. And finally, there's the doctrinal test, that is belief in Christ. And I'll just read these verses under each heading. The first test, the test of obedience, chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. The second test is that of love. It's the social test. Look at verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. There is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. The first test is obedience. Obey the commands. The second test is a very specific command, that is, of love. It is an old command, we find it in the Old Testament, but it is a new command because in Jesus this is lived out perfectly. You will notice, by the way, uh, that John doesn't tell us what the commandment is until verse number 10. In verse number 9 we have negative hate versus love, but finally in verse number 10 it is spelled out. Uh, The night before his death Jesus told his disciples, a new command I give you, Love one another. Before getting to the third test, as we've seen, John digresses. He goes off on a tangent for two specific issues. That is the nature of the church and the nature of the world. I'll just mention briefly, the world is that which stands in opposition to God. God is light and the world is in darkness. And in that sense, the believer... A child of God is not to love the world. That is the system of the world, which is marked by three characteristics. The craving of the sinful man. That's the things that happen outside. I'm sorry, inside. There is the lust of the eyes, that which is from outside. And then the boasting of what he has. The King James has the pride of life. And John then tells his readers two things about the world and its characteristics. It doesn't come from God. And secondly, it is temporary. It is passing away. So, when given the choice, do you want to be in light or in darkness? One would think light. Um, Do you want the things of God or the things of the world? Do you want that which is eternal or that which is temporary? The third test is the doctrinal test. Um, And if I haven't said it in this series, I'll say it now. I think many Christians would prefer that John would make this the first test. How do you know if somebody's a Christian? What do they believe? Um, And so the doctrinal test for many people becomes the primary test. I find it fascinating that John doesn't do that. Um, Doctrine is important. What we believe is important. But in some way, it is not the most important thing. What is important is that we obey and that we love the brothers. John begins with obedience, which leads to love. And then finally he comes to the matter of doctrine. There are three parts to the test. I'll just review briefly what we looked at last week. The distinction between the genuine and the false believers. The nature and the effect of this heresy. And then the two safeguards against heresy. To review briefly what we looked at, there were two big things. One is, John says, this is the last hour, which has really thrown some people, well, what they've done is they said, well, John and, and the other apostles were mistaken because they thought the second coming was going to happen at any moment. It's the last hour. I mean, Paul you know, and Peter, these are the last days. John's like, this is the last hour. But John isn't speaking chronologically. He's speaking in terms of theology, and in terms of ethics. By the way, he says it twice in verse number 18. His focus is theology. And what is that? What is the point that he's trying to make here? Opposition to Christ shows us, in fact, that it is the last hour. Not chronologically, but theologically. We are in a time when there is, you know, God came into the world. God, who is light, came into the world, and now the world opposes him. And this is how we know where we are. So, if you look at verse number 18, chapter 2, verse 18, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is, the last hour. So I mentioned last week, the word Antichrist and Antichrist only appears in 1 John and 2 John, nowhere else in the New Testament, not even in the book of Revelation, which John himself wrote. One would think this would be a perfect opportunity to bring it up. Uh, What is an antichrist? It's someone who is against Christ. These are the false teachers. So, the second part of this is the nature of the heresy, Verse 22, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. So that's what it means. It's not this, this mythical figure in the future who's going to try to take over the world. Jesus spoke of false Christs. But Antichrist, as John tells us, is someone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That is, that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. He is God the Son. And so he says in verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. So they are denying that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. And then the third issue is, how do we safeguard ourselves against these heresies, this false doctrine? The word must abide in him, and we have received an anointing. Verse 24, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also, or you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. First of all, we see that what they have heard from the beginning is to remain in them. And as I went through this last week in, in preparation, but also thinking this week, for those of us raised in Christian homes, I think this should really speak to us. We should really listen to this. Because we imagine that having grown up in a Christian home, we're, we're in, we're, we're okay. As though nothing is required of us. But John says that we are to make sure that the truth remains in us. This is our part, if you wish. We are to take care to make sure that it remains with us. But there are times when we get tired of it. It seems stale. We run after new ideas, innovation. The reality is the foundation. God came in the flesh. God is light. That is what is to direct our thinking. The key, I think, to the whole book may be verse number 26. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. He's warning the people. Okay. So we have the two pillars and then he begins to build. As one writer put it, it's like an upward spiral that just keeps expanding as it goes higher and higher. So we have the three claims, we have the three tests, and now he expands on each one of these three tests. Moral A test of obedience is what we'll look at today. The social test of love. And then he digresses again in a very powerful passage about if our hearts condemn us. And then he comes back to the third test, the doctrinal test of truth concerning the Lord Jesus. Let me point out something before we get into this. Um, For the first time in his letter... Believers are described as someone or those who are born of God. Um, We've not heard this thus far. We've been told that believers are those who know God, those who are in Christ, those who are in the light as he is in the light, those who abide in the Father, those who abide in the Son. But now we come to a new expression. We know it from the Gospel of John. But for the first time in this epistle, we hear that we are born of God. It is because of that birth that it is possible for us to know God and to abide in him. By the way, it also gives us insight into the nature of salvation. We tend, I think, to take too much upon ourselves as though it is something that we do but we see, in fact, that it is God who gives life. It is God who gives life, not something that we're like, yeah, I think I'll, I'll vote for that, I'll, I'll take that from God. And I, um, As I was preparing the sermon, I, I kept thinking of Kim and the baby that she carries. Um, the child has not made a choice, yeah, I think I want to be born. Uh, I think I want to be alive, I want to be a human being. This is something... Kim and Tim are giving life to this child just as God has given us light. So, let's flesh out this test of the test of obedience. The proof that someone is a Christian is not merely what they believe. That is somewhat important, but it isn't that. It is how they live, it is their conduct. Again, John has it as the first test. But John does something that we would not expect. I certainly didn't see it coming. I'm familiar with first John, but in looking at it verse by verse, in talking and expanding on the matter of moral obedience, he connects it to the second coming and the first coming of Jesus. Okay. The idea of Jesus appearing um, or the of appearing occurs six times in our passage today. Either as a noun, an adjective, or a verb, four of them refer to Christ. His future coming, when he will return, the second coming, and his first appearing, the incarnation, when he came in the flesh. And John's point is this, and I hope we will see it by the time we're finished, that our conduct as Christians should be guided by the fact that Jesus is coming back and that Jesus has come into the world. And to live as sinners, we are sinners, but to consciously say this is how I choose to live my life is unthinkable if we, if we frame it in the context of Jesus' second coming and the incarnation. So, follow along if you would as I read, beginning in verse number 28 of chapter 2. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And then in chapter 3, and this is what we heard in the promise of forgiveness today, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear children, or dear, dear friends, we are now, or now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. One of the difficult things about going verse by verse Is that you can't, I can't do all of 1 John in one sitting. We'd be here several days. And when you divide it up for the purpose of an outline, you tend to lose something. So, verse number 27 was from the last section that we looked at, okay? But if you'll look at it in verse number 27, it says, remain in him. And then in verse number 28, where we begin a new section today, John says, continue in him. And why? It is because of the return of Jesus. That may just be me, but the return of Jesus, the second coming, has been used to threaten and coerce people over the centuries. I mentioned this in the series on fear. That t shirts seem to be an unlikely example, but in fact, there is a whole industry here. Uh, You can buy a t-shirt and it says on it, Jesus is coming back and this time no one is going to cross him. Fear God. Another one is, he ain't coming back to preach. Fear God. This is not what John is doing here. The call to continue in Christ is seen with two possible opposite reactions. The first is confidence. The second is to be ashamed. That is to shrink back from him in shame. Being ashamed, and and John uses the negative here, unashamed, I think we can get our minds around. That when Jesus comes back, uh, we don't want to sort of be embarrassed at our behavior, our lives, um, you know, sort of looking down because Jesus comes back and and we know all the things that we've done. That I think we, we get. It is the confidence that I think that we may struggle with. And not, Not in a good way. I think as Americans, we tend to be much more confident than we realize in comparison to other cultures of other places and other times. We tend to be fairly self-confident. But John isn't speaking of being self-confident here. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says, Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Six chapters later in Hebrews 10 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. The basis of confidence is the Lord Jesus Christ. But only if we continue in him. That's what he said earlier, that we are to continue. We are to remain in him. And we do this if we have been born of him. Verse number 29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Something important here with regard to the doctrine of salvation. A person doing what is right is not the reason that they were born again. That they have a new birth, it is the evidence that they have in fact, been given a new birth. They've been born of God. If we have been born of God, then we will act as he does. Again, I'm thinking of Tim and Kim's baby. I hardly wait for him to arrive. and as he grows up, who will he be like will he be like his mom or his dad, his aunts, uncles, his grandparents? If we are born of God, then we are supposed to be like God. We are to do what is right. John then continues with the wonderful truth here at the beginning of chapter 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are, John tells us. Think this through. The Father has loved us with great love. He's lavished it on us. We are called the children of God. And this is what we are. It's an amazing truth. The result is that the world doesn't know us. We don't fit in in the same way that it did not know the Lord Jesus when he came. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Here John speaks of the present. Now we are the children of God. And then he points to the future. What we will be, we don't know. I have in parentheses here in my notes, I think we should learn something from John's admission of limited knowledge. I think we hear a humility in him (laughs) that we don't hear in many Christians today. But why, why does he bring this up? I mean, for some in reading this, this seems out of place. No, no, no. There is a future event. There is something that will happen in the future that in fact will define all of reality. It is the redemption of creation and of God's people. It defines all of reality. When the Lord Jesus comes back, we will see him as he is. And we will be like him. John said, we don't know what this is going to look like. What we are going to be like. But on some ways, it doesn't matter. What matters is we know he will appear. We will see him as he is. And we will be like him. Which leads to verse number three. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The reason for John bringing up a second coming is not theological. It's not a eschatology. Let's, let's do a doctrine of last things, of the return of Jesus. No. It's ethical. He is looking at the second coming in terms of ethics. How will we conduct ourselves? How will we live? If in fact we believe that Jesus will return, that he will appear, that we will see him as he is, and we will be like him, this should affect our behavior now. The way we live our lives should be affected by these truths. So everyone who has this hope purifies himself with this. So that when Jesus comes back, we will be confident and unashamed. So that's the future coming. What about the first, when Jesus came into the world? Look, if you would, uh, beginning at verse number four. I'll read verses four through ten. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he is born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. John is still expanding on the the test, the moral test of obedience. This time he he connects our behavior in the present to the past, the incarnation, when Jesus came in the flesh. In Jesus' second coming, we will see him, we will be like him as he is. That's all well and good, but what about the first, when, when Jesus came in the flesh? Well, he came to remove our sins, and to destroy the works of the evil one. John presents the argument twice. And I have been known to be somewhat repetitive myself in reviewing and things like that. But even in this one section, uh, John repeats himself. He actually gives the same argument twice. And if you'll notice, they match. Um, Verses 4 through 7, it's the first argument. And verses 8 through 10 is the second argument. And they have the same outline. You have an introductory phrase, everyone who sins. You have the theme, which is the nature of sin in the first one. The second is the origin of sin. Then you have the purpose of Christ's coming. To take away our sins, but to destroy the works of the devil. And then we have the logical conclusion, which we will see in a few moments. To continue in sin is to be completely opposed to the purpose of Jesus coming into the world. He came into the world to remove our sins, He came into the world to destroy the works of Satan. How dare we say, I'm going to do what I want? I can do, I, I can sin freely without any consequences. Why would you think that way? In verses 4 through 7, John talks about the nature of sin. What is sin really about? You're like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about the incarnation. It will come into play in a moment. John begins with universal truth. Everyone who sins. Okay, John wants to make it clear. Everybody sins. I could see, and as I was preparing this, that some might say, oh, this is a conditional statement that if you sin, then you are breaking the law. But remember the first claim of the false teachers. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Everybody sins. Okay. But what is sin? Sin is breaking the law. In fact, as John puts it, it is lawlessness. Uh, lawlessness is the essence of sin, not the result of sin. I think oftentimes when we see the world in chaos around us, we think, oh, um, This is a result of sin, that people are lawless. No, no, no. That lawlessness is, in fact, the essence of sin itself. This means, if you think about it, sin is a serious matter. Just a side note. Um, it seems that when I was younger, and perhaps it's just the tradition I was raised in, uh, we heard a lot more preaching about sin than we do today. Um, Sin is a serious matter. Um, It's lawlessness. To the false teachers, and I think maybe to many today, it's a matter of indifference. Um, As I mentioned to someone the other day, uh, someone defined sin in a sermon of his as taking a mulligan. Do you know what that is in golf? If you you don't like your shot, you you do a do-over. That sin is a do-over. Uh, Sin is lawlessness. It is rebellion against the creator. It's rebellion against his character. The law says, this is who I am. This is who I want you to be. And sin says, no, I, I want no part of that. It is lawlessness. Jesus came, if you look at verse number five, so that he might take away our sins. So how could we then treat sin as something of indifference to us. It's not a big deal. Well, if it's not a big deal, then why did Jesus have to come into the world and why did he have to suffer the things that he did if, in fact, sin is no big thing? No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Why would you continue to sin when Jesus came to, take, to get rid of your sin? Now comes the warning in verse number 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. This takes me back in my mind to chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So, that is the nature of sin. It's lawlessness. Where did it come from? This is verses 8 through 10. And here the emphasis is on the origin of sin. We've already talked about the nature of sin. We know what it is. It is breaking God's law. But where did it come from? The second argument presents it in its connection with the devil. One who sins is of the devil, as opposed to being born of God. Why? Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. One might say, the beginning of what? I I would say it's the beginning of his rebellion against God. And it is the characteristic work of the devil to destroy. As we saw when we went through the series on evil, that is the nature of evil to be anti-creation, anti-life. It seeks to oppose and deface and destroy God's good work of space and time. Specifically, to destroy us. Satan has come into the world to destroy us through sin. Jesus came to save. It is the devil, in fact, who comes to destroy. So here you are and you see these two figures. One comes to save, to remove your sin. He came to remove our sins. This one seeks to destroy you through sin. Which way as a believer, as one who is born of God, should you look? I think it becomes pretty clear. The purpose of Christ is to remove sins and to undo the works of the devil so we should have a serious a serious attitude about sin verses 9 and 10 no one who is born of god will continue to sin because god's seed remains in him he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of god this is how we know that we are who are the children who the children of god are and who the children of the devil are anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of god nor is anyone who does not love his brother I continue to be struck by the fact that as John seeks to challenge false teachers and encourage the believers he begins with the matter of obedience I mean if you're dealing with a heretic if you're having a trial of heresy I mean isn't the beginning point okay what is it that you believe okay here's the truth this is orthodoxy what do you believe and that's not what John does He begins with obedience. And this obedience leads us to love the brothers. You may remember Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? To Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself is only after John has dealt with obedience and love that he gets to the matter of doctrine, which is important. I'm not saying that it isn't, um, but again, you'd think, well, this is really important, John. I think you should get to the doctrine stuff right off the bat because you're dealing with people who are teaching false doctrine, but that's not where John starts. As John fleshes out how we are to live lives of obedience, He points to the two Advents, the Incarnation and the Second Coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first, Jesus was born of Mary and lived among us, and the second, Jesus will return. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas, and traditionally, I think most people, when they think of Advent, they think, oh, Christmas is right around the corner. We're doing these four Sundays before Christmas. And indeed, we are preparing for the, for the coming of the Lord Jesus of Mary, born in a stable. But it's a, it's a two-edged sword. There are two Advents. Jesus came into the world and Jesus will return. We live between these two advents. And John says, listen, believers and heretics, your behavior should be defined by these two events, these two advents. Jesus came to free you from sin, to remove your sin, to destroy the works of Satan. And Jesus will come. We will see him as he is. We will be like him. Okay, between these two things, How should you live? You should be marked by lives of obedience. You should have a serious attitude towards sin. It's not a small thing. If sin wasn't a big thing, why is there no sin in the presence of God, in heaven? If it's not a big deal, it's just some insignificant thing. God is holy. And when Jesus comes to take us back to be with him, we will be going to a place of sinlessness. That should somewhat inform how we live now. And if Jesus came into the world to free us from sin, to forgive our sins, to destroy the work of Satan, um, yeah, we better take a very serious attitude towards sin. And when we think of someone who is a false teacher... Or a heretic. The beginning place isn't doctrine. That's almost sort of an easy place to begin. Oh, what do you believe? What are your theological stances on this and that? No, let, let me look at your life. Do you do what is right? Are you living a life of obedience? Do you love the brothers? Then we'll get to your theology. I think there is much to teach us here. Let's pray together. Father, I think it is our tendency as human beings to take shortcuts, to go the easy route, the easy path. And so when dealing with uh, false teaching or for wondering about an individual, Um, we'd rather talk about doctrine and theology, have a theological debate, rather than being transparent ourselves, which is scary. Or looking into the lives of others, which is seen as judgmental. May we take to heart what we see in John, that as he deals with false teachers, the test begins with behavior, with obedience. And that obedience is revealed in our love for one another. And then we will get to the matter of doctrine. We are grateful that you sent your son, We're grateful that one day he will return. As your children, you've given us life. It's not a choice of our own. You gave us life. May we be like you. Like our father. Like father, like son and daughter. May we be like you. As we are reminded, as we remember why Jesus came. And that one day he will return. This week, as a nation, we have a day of thanksgiving. May we, as your children, lead the way. May we, in fact, be grateful as we think of all you have done for us. I thank you for bringing us here together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.